Would you pray with me? Father God, would you speak unto us your words of life? We pray that you would feed this your people this day. Open our hearts, open our minds to all that you have. Let us miss nothing. In the name of Christ, do we pray? Amen. Amen. Well, folks, there's preaching and there's teaching. They're listed as different gifts in the New Testament. I hope to do some of both today, uh, but the sermon's probably going to air more in the teaching direction. So if you're a note taker, it's a good sermon for that. Get out those writing utensils. Be ready to track with me. We're going to be in Luke 10, 1 to 20, which we just heard. The context for this is that Jesus is en route to Jerusalem, his crucifixion, this place of his triumph. This passage is part of that journey. Okay? Jesus has begin to, begun to set his face like flint to Jerusalem. And our, our passage begins and says, after this. And, well, what happened uh, right before this? Well, he's been, Jesus has been rejected in the Samaritan village, and he's spoken of the cost of following him, which Eric preached beautifully on last week. Jesus is choosing workers for the Lord's vineyard in this passage. I call it the mission of the 72. Your Bible, if it's a study Bible, might say the sending of the 72. Jesus is choosing workers for his vineyard. He appoints the 72. Now, why 72? Is this just, you think, a random number Jesus just pulled out of his hat? Not that he wore a hat, but you understand. His proverbial hat, no, wasn't random. Like the 12 disciples Having been sent out on mission, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, 72 is a meaningful number. It's symbolic of totality and the grand scope of God's mission. Let me unpack that a little bit. So according to Genesis 10, the number of the nations, the world's nations, was 72. That was to the known world. That's how many they thought were there. So Luke seems to be alluding to this table of nations tradition found in Genesis 10. Thus, the commissioning of the 72 anticipates the church's mission to all nations. It's symbolic of totality. It shows God's missional heart for all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities. We need to see the 72 as prefiguring what's going to happen later on in Acts. Okay? Um, and the point is this. It anticipates the mission to the Gentiles, the universal missional thrust that we find in Acts. And I think the mission of the 72, which we're going to find out more as we go on, also underscores and repeats on a bigger scale the mission of the 12, which happened a chapter before. So there's a pattern here that we're seeing. So Jesus selects the 72, and he sends them out two by two. You probably recognize that phrase. It's not explained exactly, but it's a wise and consistent New Testament practice. You don't travel solo. There are no lone rangers in ministry. It's just not wise. We need each other. Two by two is for our mutual encouragement. It's for our safety, etc. And yet again, we see how this practice prefigures the pattern that we find later on in Acts. Travel with two people, sometimes more. And if you want some Old Testament support, Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Okay, there's just wisdom in this. Jesus sends them out ahead of him. Did you catch that? Ahead of him. He doesn't precede them. They precede him in ministry. I find this fascinating. He commissions them. He gives them authority in his name. More on that later. And he, he basically throws them the keys to the car. I don't know about you. I find this humbling, but also this level of trust rather amazing. I don't know that I would trust. I don't know that I trust people that much. But Jesus does. And he makes the point that we're so deeply involved 
in his work. We get to co-labor with him. So he sent out the 72, if you want to think of it this way, as preliminary spiritual ground forces to make a beachhead, spiritually speaking, in the various towns. And Jesus would follow them and minister and bring it all home, right? Uh, With this sending comes equipping, and Luke teases this out in verses 2 through 12. I'm going to speak to that uh, in various ways. Uh, And in his commission to them, I think there are a few things that we see. Some sobering warnings, some cautions, uh, words of wisdom, certainly. uh, And also, I would say some advice as to what we would call best practices. Jesus says that famous line, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? Few. Right. So pray. uh, Pray for more labors to come about to help with this harvest. Now, harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. I think we tend to believe only part of this saying. The workers are few part in church work is like, yep, doesn't feel like we got enough people, right? But do we also believe that the harvest is actually plentiful? Do we believe that the Lord's vineyard has a bountiful harvest as Jesus describes it here? Now, since most of us are not farmers by trade, anyone a farmer here? Well, you do cultivate the land. That's right. You're going to know about this. Carolyn knows. Um, But let me give the rest of you, kind of bring you into the agrarian mindset, which is so prominent in the biblical worldview. Once fruit has ripened, sometime it's a matter of a few weeks, maybe even a few days, in which the fruit must be harvested before it rots. Thus, Jesus conveying urgency in this passage. There's an actual timeliness to their task. There's a window of opportunity, if you will, to put it in modern parlance. So they're emphatically commanded and exhorted to go. Well, what are they going to encounter? Well, Jesus lays that out for them quite a bit. First thing he mentions, wolves, (laughs) i.e. predators. And Jesus calls the 72 the sheep. Now, I feel this brought them very little initial comfort, (laughs) right? But as we shall see later, despite maybe feeling helpless or in danger, there was no cause for fear. Exhorts them not to be fearful. Why? Because God will protect them from the powers of darkness. It's a strong theme in this passage. The implication being, who keeps the sheep safe? Who protects them from wolves? The good shepherd, right? A title used of Jesus. He encourages them to travel light, uh, don't take a purse, don't take bag, don't take sandals. Let's take notice of this. Um, You're on mission amidst wolves, as Jesus has just said. You think that's a good time to be lugging around the proverbial 50-pound backpack full of stuff? No, it's not. The last thing you want to be is loaded down and have your movement impeded. Jesus is kind of exhorting us here to be lean and mean in, in the world of mission. He's making a larger point about the nature of mission. Don't let your stuff get in the way of mission. Don't let your possessions get in the way of mission, which is quite a critique to us as Americans, but it's a big picture observation that Jesus throws out there. But this requires a level of trust to travel in this fashion, to travel light. Lord, what if we run out of food? Lord, what if my car breaks down? Lord, what if, Lord, what if, Lord, what if? The point, the absence of what some might consider the bare minimum, is transformed into reliance on the Lord. God will provide for them on mission. So this is also about cultivating trust and dependence, okay? 
there's an instruction that Jesus gives about greeting no one on the way, which you might think odd, but it's kind of a time-saving measure, which underscores, I think, the urgency of the mission. And this is a wise admonition. What he's trying to say is stay focused, don't get distracted. You know, but you might say to yourself, but Joel, you know, isn't Jesus being kind of rude here, right? Greet no one on the road, really? Well, there's something cultural here that is lost on us. Ancient Near Eastern salutations and greetings tended to be very elaborate, and they tended to be very time-consuming. So this isn't about being rude. It's more about a reminder of the urgency of the mission. Again, big picture. Jesus keeps giving him this big-picture perspective. Keep your eyes on the ball, guys and gals. I don't know if we had men and women in the 72. I would love to know. Um, Verses 5 through 12 speak about greetings of peace, And Jesus spends a fair amount of time here talking about this, these greetings of peace. Peace is almost, almost synonymous with salvation in Luke. It's a big theme, a big theme. Uh, Peace, yes, does it mean an absence of war and discord? Sure, but it's more than that. It goes back to the Hebraic sense of, you've heard this word before, shalom. Shalom, communal well-being, security, abundance of provision, etc. This kind of that all's right in the world Literally speaking, that's shalom. So peace, shalom, is relational. Ergo, it's communal. It's not just about me feeling peaceful. Peace is an actual spiritual commodity that is meant to be shared, right? It's given, it's received. We do that every Sunday. We share the peace. We extend peace to one another. But in certain cases, as we'll see in verses following, an offer of peace can also be rejected, Jesus is more than suggesting that peace is a kind of a litmus test of sorts out in the mission field. So look for it, pay attention to it. I'll give you an example, or Jesus gives you an example rather. If a householder is a, says a son of peace or a person of peace, their peace will rest upon him or her. It'll find reception, in other words, right? But if he or she is not a person of peace, your peace, quote, shall return to you. This figurative language shows us that the gift of peace, it's offered to all, right, without discrimination, even though it will only be reciprocated by those fellow sons, those fellow people of peace. In other words, the people with which you're spiritually simpatico, right? There's a kindredness. These are those who are open to the work of the gospel in the way of Jesus. So to boil it down, in other words, Jesus says, stay in the places where you find this peace. Stay there. Where you see blessing and favor, stay there. Leave when that doesn't exist, knowing that there's a ripe harvest elsewhere. Don't waste your time trying to get blood from a stone. Don't waste your time trying to get blood from a turnip. Look for those safe places of peace and respite and stay there. Stay there. Receive your wages. Allow other people to care for your needs. In other words, Paul speaks about this in other places in the New Testament, several places. But the mark you're to look for is shared peace. Okay? Look for that. Have eyes for that. Extend that. Um, Now, if peace is reciprocated, and I'm in verse 7 now, in a household, guess what? Food comes with it. Jesus uh, exhorts them to eat what is put in front of them, kosher or otherwise. The text mentions this because Jesus knew that their mission was carrying them into foreign towns, into Gentile territory. He knew this. So if you're a stickler for ceremonial purity, you're going to have a real hard time with this one, okay? But Jesus is saying, don't be sidetracked by food. Don't be sidetracked by purity laws and the like. 
Jesus is suggesting a rather radical notion if you're a devout Jew. I mean, this, this would have been like, really? That's okay? But he's admonishing them to keep their eyes, again, on the big picture. Don't forget the big picture, guys. And for any of you that have studied uh, the Bible to any degree, you'll know that ancient Near Eastern hospitality is a big deal, much bigger than it is for us. And Luke is really keen on table fellowship in his gospel. So Jesus says, be a gracious guest, essentially. Jesus wants the 72 to be gracious recipients and not to bring unneeded offense or impediment to his ministry and mission by what they'll eat or what they'll not eat, right? Again, it's kind of that uh, knowing the letter, operating by the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. I think he's exhorting him to the spirit of the law here. And when they enter the town, what's the game plan? This is verses 8 through 12, roughly. Jesus gives them a couple of scenarios, uh, one where they're received well and one where they're not received. So let's begin with a positive reception. If, if you're welcomed, guys... If there's the mark of peace and hospitality, the 72 were to heal, to cast out demons, more on that later, and to preach. And the content of their message being, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. What a wonderful phrase. Jesus has sent his emissaries ahead of him. We've already talked about that. Wherever they go, they carry his kingdom with them as his messengers and as his ambassadors. You're no different. Wherever you go, you carry the kingdom of God with you. And the 72 are invading enemy territory here as evidenced by the call to heal and cast out demons, which, again, I said we'll talk about in just a second. The kingdom of God has come near to you. The advice here is to preach this to all, to those who receive their healing and their message and to those who reject their presence and their message. The kingdom will be proclaimed, and depending upon the reception of the good news, it'll be experienced as either human restoration, human redemption, human health, or his judgment, and them shaking the dust off their feet and moving on to other places. So that's the positive uh, reception. Let's talk about when they aren't received, if they're rejected by a town, if that peace is unreciprocated and hospitality isn't extended. Jesus gives them two things to do. First thing, he asks them to get a little prophetic on this place. Shake the dust from your feet. This is a prophetic act, okay? Very similar to, I mean the prophets of old. This is a prophetic act. And this is quite appropriate for those who have not been greeted with hospitality. Okay, let me, why do I say this? Well, to properly greet someone, welcome them into your home, you know the first thing you did was you wash their feet, right? And this was usually the lowliest role in the household, usually reserved for like a slave or a servant. That's the first thing you did. You wash their feet. That's your first welcome and first hello. So in other words, their feet are dusty, because no one has extended this act to them. Otherwise, there'd be no dust to shake off in this prophetic act. Okay, shake the dust off your feet. Jesus says that. Second piece, I still want you to announce the kingdom of God has come near. Still preach that. Still speak it. Jesus is still making his appeal through them, even though it's rejected. They were to preach this truth, this good news, regardless of the outcome. So the seed is scattered everywhere, in a sense. Um, now, as well as preaching the coming kingdom, Jesus gives them authority to do two other things that we see in this passage. Heal the sick, that's verse 9. Cast out demons, that's verse 19. Now, remember, our passage runs parallel to the commissioning of the 12 back in Luke 9. Remember that. 
the 12 were also given a similar authority. Now, these two ministries, healing and expelling demons, were rarely, if ever, separated by Jesus. They're not some arcane specialty of a select few. Expelling demons and healing the sick were, and I think are, part and parcel of gospel work. And they're often interrelated. The gospel writers, they make no bones about the connection between disease, sickness, and demonic activity. That was just part of their supernatural worldview. They didn't have a problem with that. This is offensive to our modern Western minds in a sense. There's not always a connection there, but frequently in, these go- in the Gospels we do see a connection. Unhealth often equals demonic oppression, often. Thus the ministry of deliverance, which Jesus and his followers practiced regularly. <clears throat> Got to hear that. Um, So while the commissioning here of the 72 doesn't contain an explicit command to cast out demons, it was still a live issue for them as the latter part of the passage bears out, 18 to 20. We'll get to that in a second. So how about that? Healing and expelling demons, a regular, normal part of ministry. That'll blow your mind a little bit. Think about if that was regular for us. Should be. Hopefully will be. Um, In verses 13 to 15, I'm going to give this a little bit of short shrift just in the interest of time. This is the woes to the unrepentant cities. You need to think of this and see this. This is a, it's kind of like a prophetic interlude on Jesus's part. Um, The 72 are to pronounce judgment and to move on to fertile areas, places where the harvest is plentiful. Some of the towns mentioned here are Jewish towns. Some of them are Gentile towns mentioned here. Some will repent, some won't, but the gospel is proclaimed in all of them, okay? So that's 13 to 15. Uh, let's, let's deal with the, the end of the passage, 16 forward. 16 is, is so uncompromising. Notice where the 72 G goes, Jesus goes. <laughs> where the 72 go, Jesus goes. So to reject the 72, Jesus says, is to reject who? Him, right? Likewise, to receive the 72 is to receive who? Him, Jesus. So when Jesus authorizes anyone to minister, that person ministers with his authority. His authority. Anyone who hears the 72 hears Jesus. Anyone who rejects the 72 rejects him. Think of Matthew 10, 20. For it is not you that speaks, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. This goes back to that idea. Guess what, guys? You are God's ambassadors. You're carrying his kingdom with you wherever you go. I don't know about you, but the question I have to ask myself is, am I ready and prepared to be identified in that way? Am I I ready for that? Do I really think about that when I head out the door in the morning? I'm an ambassador carrying the kingdom of God wherever I go. It's radical, right? St. Teresa of Avila puts it this way. Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ looks out to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless others now. St. Teresa is speaking about the shared mission of the church. Happens to be a very incarnational one, which I love. So the results of the mission, we actually get to see it in this passage, which is unusual. We don't always know how things pan out, but we get to see what happens. The 72 come back, and this is verses 17 through 20. So let's pull back the veil here and and take a look and see what happens, okay? Here are the results. They're given authority over the demonic realm. They come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. This is 19. They 72 come back, it says, with joy, 
because they've been treading on serpents and scorpions. They've exercised power over their spiritual enemy, Satan and his minions. Jesus had promised them that nothing shall hurt you, okay? Jesus is speaking of the demonic realms here and of their foothold in the world. But we aren't to fear the devil or his minions. Instead, we're to do what they did. We're to expel them, to cast them out because of the authority given to us by Jesus. The forces of darkness are subject to his authority given to us. We aren't subject to them. We aren't a slave to them. So we don't have reason to be intimidated or to fear the demonic realm. I mean, you ever think about this, guys? Every one of you has been authorized and empowered to kick out demons. That's pretty weighty. That's pretty hardcore. And again, I want to just stress this was commonplace, and it was the norm in Jesus' ministry. And again, probably more than our modern Western minds are really comfortable with, but it was part and parcel of his ministry. It just was. Um, Jesus gives a mild, I don't know if I want to say a mild rebuke to the 72, maybe a little course correction, a little attaboy to get them going in the right direction upon their return. He doesn't want them to anchor their joy in their power over the realms of darkness, as amazing as that may be. Have joy, he says to them, instead because God knows you. Right? This is the latter. This is verse 19 and 20 we're in. Have joy instead because God knows you. You're known by him. Your names are written in the book of life. So take joy in that. So Jesus is locating joy in the right place. Anchoring joy not in our works, powerful and miraculous and amazing as they may be, even in the name of Jesus, but he's anchoring our joy in our identity and our standing in Jesus. Okay, that was a brief, cursory, 30,000-foot view of one to tw- Luke 10, 1 to 20. Some of you are going, look, you said I could take notes. That's great, but what are the four points? What are the three points? I'll give those to you now. <laughs> How about that? Uh, so for those of you who want a takeaway, a so what, here's your so what's and your takeaways, okay? And there are four of them, actually. First, And they're all about mission. Love that. First, mission doesn't start with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Mission does not start with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Scripture is shot through with God's mission from beginning to end. Think of the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing to all nations. That's missional. Or the call to the people of Israel to be a light to all nations. That's missional, right? Or the monarchy of David called to be a beacon among the pagan nations. That's missional. The plans for holy reclamation, which is how I think of this, God's mission, have existed ever since Adam and Eve fell. And God is always seeking to redeem and heal the world through us, us as co-laborers in his vineyard. So mission doesn't start with the Great Commission of Matthew 28. It's part of the whole biblical story. So got to get that. That's point number one. Two, I've already alluded to this. With mission comes provision. With mission comes provision. Now, this given it's guided by the Holy Spirit, and you're sent by Jesus to do it, right? Um, but mission, with mission comes provision. We aren't sent out by God and told to just, well, hustle and do your best, Right? We're not sent out empty-handed. God equips the 72 here, and he equips us. 
likewise. We're empowered. We're given actual authority. Yes, actual authority to carry out the mission. Okay? But we have to own and we have to exercise that authority. You got to own it. You got to exercise it. You got to believe in it. You got to act as if it's true because it is. That authority is part of the provision for mission. So with mission comes provision. Same is true of calling. That's two. Three, mission will yield mixed results. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean some will reject us. Some will. Others will receive us. That's part of mission, right? You think of the parable of the sower and the seed that gets scattered. Not all seed comes up fruitful. But Jesus wants us to follow the peace that we're given, where we see those signs of peace, and focus on those who are hungry for the gospel. Don't waste time and resources on the naysayers, right? Don't, don't try to get blood from a turnip. Go where the ground is fertile, because the implication is fertile ground lies elsewhere, okay? So three is mission will yield mixed results. Final one, ready? And this, again, uh, is... is in my opinion, overlooked by us Westerners, or at least it's not normal to us. Mission is opposed, and not just by human beings. Mission is opposed, and not just by human beings. Big picture again. Mission is the arena of conflict with the demonic. <laughs> Jesus doesn't make any bones about that. Count on it. Uh, here, Listen to Ephesians 6.12. You've heard this before. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings, ultimately but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay? The mission of the 72 brings to the forefront the cosmic battle going on between God and the devil. Still going on now. I don't know if you knew that. The battle for the hearts and minds, the very lives of people. The devil's aim is to destroy and maim those made in the image of God. Right? He's got his sight set on you. And that is what he's about. The 72 are sent out on a rescue mission to pry people back from the abyss, to set people free, to restore them, to heal them. Now, I don't know what your opinion is on spiritual warfare, deliverance ministries, all that stuff. But I got to say, it's a biblical part and parcel of God's missional work. It just is. It's just, it just is. We see this in the pattern of Jesus' ministry, trying to pull people back from the realm of darkness, healing the sick, casting out demons, restoring what's been broken, is normative in Jesus' mission in which we share. So uh, that was point four. We're all called to join in this shared mission. Do we believe the harvest is plentiful? Or do we just believe the workers are few? Right? Let us labor in the Lord's vineyard together. God has work for us to do here in Charlotte. Let's do it together. Okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you embed and mark us with your mission? Give us heart and passion and eyes to see the have-nots, the overlooked, those in spiritual bondage, whether that's in our workplace, in our neighborhood, uh, wherever we find ourselves. But Jesus, would you grant us a strong and uncompromising sense of mission? 
And thank you that you've already promised to empower us to do it and have given us authority to do it. Help us to lean into that and to live into that and to believe that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand.